0: Now, before I get into the study this morning, let me just take a, a brief historical note about this, this whole passage. Uh, for years, people have used Daniel 5 as an example of why the Bible was untrustworthy and unreliable and, and didn't agree with actual history. You see, it's, it's writing about the story of the Babylonian Empire primarily, and the Babylonian Empire was the greatest empire of that time. We have a lot of historical record about the Babylonian Empire, what happened, um, you know, it was the greatest empire, literally, you know, up through the time it was conquered in 539 uh, BC. And we know from those records that the last king uh, of the Babylon Empire, when it was conquered, was a guy named Nabodidus. And so, for decades, you know, liberal historians have argued that the history is clear. You know, that we know from history that the last king was this guy, Nabodidus, and um, And and therefore, when you look in Daniel 5 and it talks about this king, and the king is not Nabonidus, but it's Belshazzar, they argue, well, therefore, it shows that Daniel isn't history. It it was legend and it was not based in history. You know, the facts are wrong. Now, that's been argued for decades and literally is, is a passage that has convinced people to distrust the Bible. But it's some, you know, something really interesting happened. Because what we find is a lot of times when it looks like the Bible's wrong, it's because we don't have enough information. Well, back a few decades ago, archeologists found a tablet known as the Nabonidus Chronicle, and it told the story of that last king, the guy named Nabonidus, and how he left the city in 552 BC, 13 years before the city was conquered. He left to build a new, uh, new uh, palace, to live in comfort in a, in a city that's now in a place in Saudi Arabia. And when he left, he left the day-to-day rule of the city to his son, his designated heir, heir a guy named Belshazzar, the name that's in Daniel chapter five. And so it not only proved that the Bible was right all along, that, you know, that there is this Belshazzar, that he was the guy that was actually on the throne and on that last night, But it actually also explained a very unusual passage in the book of Daniel that we had never been able to understand. You see, in in Daniel 5, when uh, Belshazzar uh, calls Daniel and he asks him to interpret the writing on the wall and, and its meaning, he makes a promise. If you can do this, I'm gonna give you all these gifts and I'm gonna make you third in the kingdom. And no one could ever understand why he would make him third in the kingdom and not second. Well, now suddenly we understand. Because Belshazzar himself was second in the kingdom. His dad was first in the kingdom. The highest he could raise, Daniel to was third. And my friends, I want you to see that this whole story, again, demonstrates the truthfulness, the reliability of the Bible. We should believe it. And there are people that will attack it. But the fact is, the more we learn, the more we realize that it is true in every way. It's true historically. It's true spiritually. It speaks ultimate truth. Now we're diving into Daniel 5, and Daniel 5 is in many ways a continuation and building off of what we looked at last week in Daniel 4. In Daniel 4, it's a story of a previous king, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, and how God humbled him. This guy that was very arrogant, very proud, and God humbled him, and at the end of Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar made this statement about his faith in God and his response. Look what he says. He said, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And so it's not only a statement of praise and honor to God but it's also a warning to those that would follow after him. And Daniel tells us that Nebuchadnezzar actually wrote this as part of the official record of Babylon kind of as a warning to any king that would come after him. Now clearly what we're going to see is here in Daniel 5 is there's a king that comes after Nebuchadnezzar who didn't heed this warning who instead chose a path of pride. In fact, we're gonna see in Daniel 5 that that at one point uh, Daniel confronts this king Belshazzar and he confronts him by retelling the story of how God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar. And then he tells him this in verse 22, and you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. And so what he's saying is, this is in the record. You've heard the story. You know this, but in spite of the fact that you know it, You've ignored what, what, uh, what the previous king had learned and the warning that he had given. So this is all building on it. And it's a message that's incredibly practical. Again, anytime we read a story like this and it's about kings 2,500 years ago and parties and temples and, you know, and we might think, well, that doesn't apply to us. I want you to see that this is incredibly practical. And we see this primarily in the threat that was faced. It's not in the details of the party. It's, it's an understanding that what they were facing, the context of the story, is that they were facing an, an existential threat, a threat literally to the existence of the, the, the country. Let me start by reading the first verses of Daniel 5. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to look there with me. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords and wives and concubines drink from them. And then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of the God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them and they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Now it's easy to read this and to read about this great wild party. And, and again, to think this has no, no relevance to our lives today. I mean, we're not kings. You know, we don't have the resources to have this great party. We, it's not like we have the you know, vessels of the temple that we can somehow go and take. It seemed like this is totally irrelevant, but here's what I want you to realize. The, the, the relevancy isn't in the details of the party, it's in the context that the party was given. The context is this. The Babylonian Empire has been the great empire for, you know, for over a generation. But now the Persian Empire has risen to become a major threat to Babylon and its power. We actually know from other historical sources that just a couple weeks before this event, a couple weeks before the city fell, there had been a great battle. The armies of Babylon had met the armies of Persia and the armies of Babylon had been routed and scattered. And then after that, the Persian army then marched to the city walls and now had been camped out right outside of the walls of Babylon getting ready for a siege. Now, when you understand this, here's the context. On the one hand, you have the king of Babylon and you have the people of Babylon hoping that they are safe because they're behind the walls of this great city, the greatest city that, you know, that, that ancient history had known. They're incredibly huge walls. And they had water, they actually, the, the, the uh, river Euphrates actually flowed underneath the city, so they had fresh water, they had supplies that were store, store, uh, stored up that allowed them to be able to stand a siege for a couple of years. And so on the one hand, they have hope, but on the other hand, there's incredible uncertainty, because you have this great mighty army that's right outside. Now, Some people would say, "Well, okay, where's that in the book of Daniel? Well we know that even in Daniel, it's not only history. If you look at the very end, we're told that that very night, you know, the Babylon, a city, a city of Babylon was conquered by the Median Persian army. Okay, now here's an army of a couple hundred thousand people. They don't just sneak up on a city. It's not like nobody knew that they were coming. Everybody knew. Every, everybody knew. It's right there even in Daniel. Everybody knew that they were coming. They were there. And the context is this incredible threat. There are people dealing with in times of great uncertainty and enormous threat, and the question is in the the passage, how are they going to respond? And my friends, when you understand this context, I think we'd have to agree. It's hard to find a more relevant context, a more relevant passage to what we're facing today. You see, here you have Babylon, the arguably the greatest city, the greatest civilization known to history up until that time. Its strength and wealth had been unmatched up until that time. The people were living in this great city of great power and great security in the same way. We live in what has been argued to be the greatest country in world history. We have great wealth. We have great power. We have great security. We're the the lone superpower of the world. And not only that, we live in this time where science tells us that, that it solved all the problems of life, that we have control. We finally got it. And yet, now we have an enemy outside of our gates. We have an enemy that's outside the gates where we suddenly realize that we don't have control. And our health, and our economy, our future is suddenly uncertain. And the question is, how will we respond? What we've got to realize is that what we're seeing throughout this whole section of Daniel is is that God will often bring us periods of crisis to try to get our attention. But these periods of crisis then, even as they are for us today, are opportunities on the one hand for us to, be, to, to learn, to grow, for us to realize that, that we think we're in control, we think we, we live in a, an economy, a science, that we control things, it, it helps us to become humble and to realize that we don't have the control we, we thought we had. And it's an opportunity for us in that to be able to humble ourselves and to, to learn what God wants us to learn to become actually healthier people. But on the other hand, it can be something that doesn't cause us growth, but it can reveal something broken in our nature. And we see this contrast again in Daniel 4 and 5. In Daniel 4, you have a crisis, a major crisis for the King Nebuchadnezzar. He loses his kingdom, he literally loses his sanity. But in the midst of that, it's an opportunity for growth. So that at the end, we saw this verse just a moment ago, he writes, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now what does he say when he says that you know that I praise and honor the king, all his ways are right? What he's saying is everything is right, even his ways of humbling me. Here you have Nebuchadnezzar saying the things that he's done that were painful were right because they helped me to realize what I needed to understand. I needed to understand that I had been proud, and and he's able to humble those who are proud. So on the one hand, you see him learning, and on the other hand, what we're gonna see is that this king that follows him, this, this Belshazzar, doesn't learn it, and instead of being humbled, instead of seeing this as an opportunity for growth, he becomes hardened, and it reveals this character of pride that was unwilling to change. And we see this core problem, again, in Daniel's confrontation. Again, look at what he says, Daniel says in verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. My friends, what you're saying here is that what Daniel's saying, what this passage is saying, is the core problem is pride. In a sense, we could say the disease that we deal with is pride. And if the disease is pride, the answer is being humbled, as it says here. So how do we understand this disease of pride and the cure of humility? See, a lot of times when we think of pride, the problem is is that we often think of pride as it relates to each other. So when we think of somebody that struggles with pride, we think of that person who thinks they're better than everyone else, that only thinks of themselves. It's all about what they can get. Or there are people that that may not only think of themselves, but they think they're more important. They think they're smarter than everyone else. They think that, that they know more. And we know of people like that, and that's usually what we think of when we think of pride. But the pride that he's talking about here isn't in relation to each other, it's a pride in relation to God. It's a core foundational problem that goes back all the way to Genesis chapter, you know, at the very beginning, and and uh, Genesis and the fall of of Satan uh, was pride. And when we say it's a pride in relation to God, it's not necessarily that we think we're smarter than God or we know better than God it's a pride that ultimately expresses itself in the belief that we think that we're in control. We think we're in control of our lives. And since we're in control, we realize, you know, we think we really don't, think we need God that much. Oh, we need him to help us, we need his consultant, but we don't really have to rely on him. You see, pride is our thinking that we're in control of our lives and destiny. And when we think that, we won't say this oftentimes, but in practice what we are saying through our actions is ultimately we think we're our own God. Oh, we may affirm the idea of God. It's not that this is just atheists. No, this includes a lot of people that go to church and people that you know, uh, sing worship songs. And because we may go to church on Sunday and affirm the concept of God and even say the right words and sing the right songs. But what happens is we reveal the pride, not by what we do on Sunday, but what we do starting on Monday. Because what happens is we leave church, and when we go to the workplace, we have lifestyle decisions or things that disagree with God, and and suddenly we we do what works in the workplace instead of what God says. Or we have lifestyle choices and moral choices that that disagree with God. and, And ultimately, when we look at this and we say, well, I know that God says this, and but I've got to decide what's right for me. I've got to decide what applies for me in this time. We look at it and say, well, the culture has changed. You know, we live in a different time and we've got to keep up with history. And, and, and so we've got to understand this is how it applies to us, to me. And what we're doing when we say this is that we're saying we have final say in our lives. Oh, we talk about God, we you know talk about the Bible, but God is a consultant. See, what we're really saying is, God, I'm gonna listen to you, I'm gonna consult you, I'm gonna get your opinion, but then as I take your opinion, then, I, then I'm gonna weigh them and make the final decision about what's right for me, what's right in this time, in this culture. And God, you know, there's some of these things that, it, that applied then, it doesn't apply now. I have the right to decide, I'm in control of my own lives, and we are sure that's the way it should be. My friends, God will at times then send crisis into our lives. And even at times, he will send crises into the life of a country. And what I said a moment ago is important to realize that God sends these as a time to to confront that pride. To show us that we don't have the control that we think we do. That suddenly, you know, we're out of control. Suddenly we're in panic because we realize how much we don't control again, as we said, if pride is the disease, then the cure is is humility. But humility doesn't just mean that we acknowledge that we don't have control. That's the starting point, but it goes beyond that. It's not only acknowledging that we don't have control, it also means acknowledging there is someone else who does. That there is a God and he does have control. And it's not only acknowledging that God is in control, but it's also then submitting to him, to his wisdom, to his control. Now as hard as it is to admit that we don't have control, that's hard to do. I wanna tell you it's a lot harder for us to come to the point where we admit that God has control and we need to submit to him. There are many times people admit we don't have control and we panic and we try to figure things out, but man, it's a whole lot harder to recognize, I don't know, do I not have control, but God does. And not only recognize that truth, but then act in a way that is consistent with that because if God does have control, if he knows everything, that means that I should submit to his wisdom and to his control. Now, again, think about Daniel. When we look at these two kings, it's not the difference between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar. It's not that one admitted they didn't have control and one didn't. Both understood that. It's that the first, Daniel 4, Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he not only admitted that he didn't have control, but he admitted that God was in control and he surrendered to God's control in his life. And here you have this other one who is unwilling to admit that. And instead of admitting that God was in control, what he did is he responded even to this crisis, even to the lack of control with pride. And what we see in this passage is something not only about what he did, but something that we do. Again, remember, the, sh- the context is there's this huge shadow of crisis hanging over Babylon. And, you know, Babylonian army's been defeated. The Persians are right outside of the walls. You know, they, the, you know the Babylonian people, they'd hoped they'd prepared for a long siege. They, they believed that they would hold, so they had hope, but they had tremendous doubt. Now, again, thinking of that context, again, now go back to verses one and two and see how Belshazzar responds to this crisis. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a 1,000 of his lords and drank wine in front of the 1,000. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, uh, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might, might drink from them. Now again, we might ask, if you understand that the context is the army is right outside of the gates, it's an existential threat, how did he respond by throwing this incredible party? And here's what I want you to realize. He was doing something that it's human nature to do, that we still do today. You see, God wants us to, in this time, to admit our lack of control and just turn to Him and to surrender to Him and to find security in Him. But you know what we do, what He did, is we look at that lack of control and it brings fear and it brings insecurity and it brings pain. And instead of looking to God to bring healing to that, we instead try to medicate it. We try to self-medicate our fear and our pain with parties and with pleasure. See, again, if you look at your Bibles, you see this that, you, you know, in chapter or verse two, it says that he had this party and it is his lords and his wives and his concubine and Now here's what even in the context you realize, it would have been unusual for a king to have his wives in a feast like this, but his concubine was really rare. You know, the concubine of a king, they they were hidden away in the harem. You know, they were the kings in a sense, the only purpose, they were there to please the king sexually, and they were hidden away. And so the only reason that you would bring the concubine out in this time, it was to create the setting of sensuality and pleasure what it's telling us is that this feast was, was, was a feast that it was basically an orgy. It was about sex, it was about drinking. It was this incredible you know, feast of, of, of just diving into all kinds of, p- of pleasure. And what you have happening here is the king and, and all the people with him immersing themselves in the pursuit of pleasure so that they don't have to think about the threat that's outside of their gate. They're fearful, they're painful, but if I have a party, if I just immerse myself in pleasure, I don't have to think of it. My friends, again, when you understand this, you understand that while the setting of this party might seem unusual to us, what he actually did, what's happening here is something that is incredibly common. It's what we do. You know, we deal with our fear and uncertainty or the pain in life and frustration. And you know, how do we do that? By taking what we think we can control, by pursuing pleasure, by pursuing, you know, even at times self-medicating through, uh, through substances that help us forget Because what we're trying to do is how do I not, how do I run to the one who can heal the pain? How do I escape the pain by medicating, by pursuing other things that make me forget? And oftentimes then we become even addicted to this. Because what happens is that I medicate it, now I need this, I need the pursuit of this relationship, I need the pursuit of this pleasure, I need the pursuit of this lifestyle. And sometimes it's not even bad things. You know, sometimes it could be something as simple as, In the midst of it, I'm just going to lose myself in video games. I'm going to just sit there and turn off my brain because I just want to play games and not think about these things that are worrying me, these things that are so difficult in life. And here's why it's an expression of pride. We're insisting that, at the end, we have to be in control. We're admitting that, in a sense, there's some pain there. There's some fear there. But to use a physical term, instead of consulting a doctor instead of realizing, I don't have control and there's something that's broken, I need to go to the doctor and have the doctor tell me what's wrong and prescribe the right medicine. Instead, I'm going to say, I know, I know the answer. Yeah, maybe God's trying to teach me something, but I don't wanna go to my creator. I don't wanna go to the one who understands all things because I think I understand all things. And what I understand is, boy, if I just play, I can, I can medicate that pain. If I just pursue pleasure, I can, I'm going to double down on that solution. Now, let me even point out some of where this has played out in our current crisis. You know, I, I read a study where it talked about some of the industries that have really suffered and some that have prospered in this time of national crisis. Most have really suffered. Some have done so far worse than others. The travel industry is just getting destroyed. And it's an incredible crisis for the travel in- industry, from airlines to cruises to hotels. Uh, restaurants are struggling, retail shopping. You know, they have some industries that are really struggling. But some are doing well. You know, online shopping, Amazon, you know, doing great. Grocery stores are doing great. Toilet paper makers are doing great. But interesting, on the top 10 list of industries that have done well and prospered in this time, two of them are marijuana distributors and online pornography. Online pornography, they say, is up 10 times, you know, the, the amount people are looking. Now, you look at that and you say, why is that? Because we live in a time of crisis and there's fear and there's pain. And you have even in those things, people saying, okay, let me go get, you know, let me go to my marijuana and, and do that drugs that just medicates the pain. Let me go to pornography because what is that? That's a way of escaping and somehow allowing to medicate the pain, to escape in the pursuit of pleasure. Or you think about even all the news that you've heard about these, these college students that have created a crisis in Florida because they've insisted, we've gotta go do spring break in Florida in spite of the crisis. What is that? There's people that are coming and saying, in the midst of the pain, we've gotta got somehow medicate it through pleasure. My friends, here's what I want you to realize. Those people, or if it's us, that agree that that's true of us, When we respond that way, we're responding to this crisis in the exact same way that Belshazzar expanded to the crisis of the army outside of his gates. You see, they didn't want to admit their lack of control and what God was trying to teach them, so they tried to self-medicate and deal with it with this feast, and with with, pursuit of sex, and with drinking, and a party, and, and we do the same thing. My friends, if you're here and you're fearful, again, I understand that, we all are, this is difficult times, but if you're here, I wanna encourage you, if you're trying to drown those fears in the pursuit of, you know, just in games of shutting off your mind or the pursuit of pleasure, don't run away from them. God is making us aware of something that he wants to heal. And running away from that in the pursuit of pleasure and the pursuit of parties or, or games or whatever, My friends, all that's doing is it's covering the symptom. It's not healing it. God wants us to to, to admit, God, I'm not in control. I admit it. But you are. And you know better than I do. And he wants us to surrender to him. And in that, to be healed, he offers that grace to us. You see, that's the first thing that, that we see with Belshazzar. The second thing that we see that he did, which we do now, is that we demand that God submit to us and to our gods. Now, again, let's go back to Daniel 5. Look at verse 2 again. And Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken from the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Now, we read this in the context is, you know, 70 years ago, when Nebuchadnezzar had defeated uh, Jerusalem, he looted not only the city, but specifically the temple. He took many of these vessels that were part of the worship of God from the temple, and he put them into the temple of his gods. Now, what's happening here is that they had been kept here, and in the midst of this time, for some reason in this party, you have now this, this other king, this Belshazzar, decides to go get those, you know, those... Those vessels to the temple of God and he makes them part of the orgy and not only that but they're now start offering toast to their own gods Now, here's what I want you to realize when we think of Nebuchadnezzar what happened God humbled him and in humbling him it was not only an awareness that I'm not in control but God is and the response was that Nebuchadnezzar then submitted himself to God to God's truth Now, what he does here instead, what Belshazzar does is the exact opposite. Instead of submitting to God and his truth and his word, he says, well, here's my ideas. Here's my party. Here's my pursuit of pleasure. Here's my gods. Here's my, you know, here's my wisdom. And I'm going to take these vessels of God and I'm going to make them submit to me, to my ideas, to my gods. Now, Again, we may look at that and say, we don't have, you know, we don't have vessels. This doesn't apply to us. We wouldn't do this. But we do. We do the same thing and we do it in times of crisis. You see, it's not about vessels from the temple or idols of gold, but we still demand that the true God submits to our desires, to the desires and the wisdom of our culture, to our gods. Where we do this is where we refuse not only to submit to God, but where we elevate our own ideas above God. And again, you know, I'll, I'll get in discussions with people and, and, and they'll say, well, I know that the Bible says this, but our culture has changed. We've got to be on the right side of history. You know, you know, morally, we have evolved. And so what we're saying is, no, you've got to understand that culturally, we are wiser than we were before and our moral evolution is higher than God's. Or I'll even hear people that will try to take the Bible and, and, and twist it so that it will somehow now get it to, to justify behavior that everyone for... Since the Bible was written, understood that the Bible was condemning. And so I've, you know, read articles where people are talking about, you know, that it's, you know, you know, the to worship God through abortion or things like that. And it's like crazy. And you know what it is? It's exactly what we're doing here. We're saying these are our gods, these are our values. And, and we're making God bow to them. I want to show you even another example of how this has happened in this time in culture. A couple weeks ago, as this was just developing, you had some of our celebrities get together and they decided to record a song. And so a lot of them got together and they sang the song and you know, on their computers and sent it to somebody and they cut it up so that they have different people singing different songs. And when you look at it and say, what song would they need in this moment of crisis to proclaim a truth that would help us understand how to respond? And you know what song they sang? It's John Lennon's, Imagine. And how does it go? Imagine that there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. So how does it start? Imagine that there's no such thing as heaven. No no God. No ultimate reality. Imagine that there's no countries. It's not hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. And so what is it that that song that they said, okay, this is what we need to bring hope. We need a song that just helps us to imagine there is no God. That the first thing some of the people in our culture did was, we need to double down on the sense that they're, yeah, we're not in control, but we know God isn't. We need to celebrate that God isn't. We need to reunite about the fact that there is no God. My friends were guilty of the very same thing that is being described here. See, there's a principle that's being taught here, that's taught throughout Scripture. It's summed up in in several passages. One is in in, uh, James chapter four. It says this, but he gives more grace. God gives grace. We understand all this is grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's what Nebuchadnezzar had said at the end of chapter four. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. If we live a life of pride, God's gonna try to humble us. But if we refuse to learn, God's gonna ultimately stand against us. But if we are able to learn, if we're able to, to be humbled before him, he gives grace to the humble. And so it's teaching us, in the midst of this, to see what God's trying to, to you know to, to what God wants us to learn. And to ultimately call and to submit to God and to his truth. To recognize that we're not in control, but there is a God who is. and He wants us to not only recognize that he's in control, but to submit to him, to pursue a relationship with him. Again, go back to Daniel chapter 5, verse 5. It says, In the midst of this, uh, it's the context of this feast, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. It says, his color changed. It means he turned white, you know, he's just white as a ghost. Interesting, when it says his lips gave way, you know, that's just that's cleaning it up a little bit. Literally, literally translated, his loins loosened. Basically, he messed himself. You know, he messed his pants. Messed what, you know, not a very kingly thing to do. And, um, and so he was scared to death. Verse 7, the king called called loudly to bring all the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or made known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and its color changed, and his lords were perplexed. I want you to see it's teaching us something here about the timeless and absolute nature of truth. Because what happens is they, they call the wise men. Now, who are these wise men? It's the same people that Nebuchadnezzar called in chapter one, chapter two, same people they keep calling, they can't give the answers. And you know, Daniel keeps getting called in because they can't give all the answers. But, but instead of figuring out that you know they don't have the right answers, we just keep calling them. And I find that interesting because I think, again, it's so relevant today. What happens any that you have a crisis? We have we have certain experts, and you see them called on to CNN and called on to the news channels, and they interviewed, and and here is our wisdom, and here's and the thing is is that all the answers, you know, everything that they say it doesn't work, and and we continue all our science, all our all the things that we think we control, it continue to be humbled, but do we learn? Now, they call on all the wise men. They can't answer it. So then what we see in verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, Your father the king made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Now what's interesting is here, you have the queen remembers. There was a time, this guy Daniel, he interpreted things. You remember your father, you know, know, previous king, Nebuchadnezzar, he prospered because he listened to this king, or to this counselor, to this Daniel. And what you see is that in the pursuit of just doing it our way, we will continue to go back to the wisdom of, of the culture, but it never works. But what we realize, on the other hand, God's word never changes. And look at what happens. Then the king calls Daniel and he makes all these promises that if you do this, I'm going to give you all this wealth. I'm going to give you all these benefits. And and look at Daniel's response in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. You give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to his interpretation. Now, Now, basically, it's not, he's not being smart to the king. He's not, you know, he's not being humble. What he's doing is this. He's saying, he's making a statement. I don't want a reward because what I'm about to tell you isn't as a result of human wisdom. It isn't because I'm well-trained or I'm smarter than everyone else. I don't want the reward because this isn't of me. It's not the product of my analysis. It's a product of divine insight. This is the word of God. This is what God's word says. And my friends, what we've got to realize in our time, in our culture, again, where we have all all these opinions, all this, it doesn't work. God's word, we need to come back to God's word. If you ever want to understand truth, come back to God's word. You know, it's timeless, it's absolute. It transcends time. And again, we live in a culture where we have people say, no, it's changed. No, you understand, you know, we progressed. we got to be on the right side of history on these issues. And as we've said before, if you go back to then, the right side of history was all the wise men of Babylon and Daniel stood against the right side of history. He was on the wrong side of history. But you know what has happened? Is Babylon fell. All those wise men were proved false and the word of God has never fallen. It has never failed. And time has changed again and now what we know to be true has changed. It's different but then, but now we know we're smart. Now we know we're right. Now we know that culture is right. My friends, the right side of history is always standing with God. It is ultimate truth. It is truth that never changes. It is absolute, it is timeless. And yes, it disagrees with many things that, is, that are seen to be true in our culture, but it did then. And God's word never fails. And you see even the queen kind of saying, you know, well, we kind of changed, but I remember way back when, when Daniel and my friends, God is calling us as individuals, as a country to remember way back when, when we understood God's word was true. That when we understood that only if we live, base our life based on God's word and a pursuit of a relationship with him, only then will life work. Not only that, but it teaches us the absolute uh, timeless nature but also the practical nature of truth. You see, if you look at these two stories, it's not only that one you know, ultimately humbles himself before God and one doesn't, it's, it's also the end result. You have at the end of chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar prospers, God restores his kingdom. At the end of chapter five, Belshazzar dies his kingdom falls that very night. And we have to look at this, and it's not just, you know, there is a sense where the Bible teaches, as we saw in James, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, that's true. But it's not just that, okay, if you do bad things, God's gonna reward you, and if you do good things, God's gonna bless you, it's, no, it's not that. You see, what you've gotta realize is that if we think in our terms of our lives here now, and we face a crisis, we have the coronavirus, And good people and bad people are struggling with this. It's impacting us all. You have believers who humble themselves before God and unbelievers who are, you know, rebellious against God. And we're all struggling. People are losing their jobs, good and bad, believers and unbelievers. People are gonna get sick, believers and unbelievers. See, it's not saying that, okay, if you do good things, God's gonna give you only good things. No, what it's saying is that there's a truth here. There's a principle of truth that transcends circumstances. And the nature of truth is it's, it's what works. It's, it describes what's real. And the fact is, no matter what our culture thinks today, the reality is, is that in the beginning, God created the world. We were created by God, that we were created for a relationship with God, that God built into his creation moral fabric. And if we align ourselves with that moral fabric, our life works better. If we don't, it breaks more. If we pursue a relationship with God, our life works better. Now practically, what does that mean? We still will get sick. We're still gonna have believers lose their job. We're still gonna go through this crisis. The army's outside of the wall for all of us. But God's trying to teach us something. And if we understand what he's trying to teach us, and we admit that we don't have control, and we learn that, and we embrace this relationship with him, what happens is he's gonna give you a peace that passes understanding that in the midst of this, that God's going to grow us. And at times, it may still be painful as it was with Nebuchadnezzar, as it was even at times with Daniel. It may be painful, but God will grow us so that we will not only make it through, but that we will prosper. As it says in Romans 8, that we will be more than conquerors through him who loved us. My friends, God invites us to that life where we learn, we pursue, we we build on the truth of of relationship with God. See, and we've got to understand that all of this declaration of truth is ultimately given as an expression of God's grace. You see, even back then, what happened with, when he gave this dream, first of all, to Nebuchadnezzar, it was an invitation of grace. Now here, when it shows up to Belshazzar, it says, no, now the writing is on the wall. What's the meaning? You have been, you know, he interprets it and says, you've been weighed, you've been found wanting. This very night, your kingdom's gonna be divided. The writing was on the wall. It was, it was the moment of judgment. He had rejected God for so long that God said, okay, today's the day God's gonna hold you accountable. But here's what I want you to realize. That for most of us, that writing isn't on the wall today. See, God's truth isn't speaking, being spoken as a writing on the wall that said, okay, God's gonna judge you today. It's, it's a warning to say the judgment's gonna come the consequences are gonna come. If we, if we live our life with pride and, and try to hide in pleasure, if we, if we reject God and try to make ourselves our own God, our lives are gonna become broken and the consequences are gonna come and God's gonna oppose the proud. And, but he gives us this truth not to condemn us for where we have fallen short. But to point out where we have fallen short so that we can admit we've fallen short and we can surrender ourselves, humble ourselves before God. We can find His healing, we can find His health, we can find the life that He's created us for. My friends, I want you to realize that that in the midst of this time, we're all afraid. The enemy's outside of the gates. These are hard times. I understand that. And I'm not making light of that in any way, but what I'm telling you is that. God is allowing this crisis because he's trying to teach us as individuals and us as a country something. And the question is, how are we going to respond? How are you going to respond? What is God trying to teach you? And you can run away from that. Like, like Belshazzar, you can try to you know, self-medicate and hide and pleasure and games and not think about it. Or you can try to double down and I know what's best. Or you could recognize that God's trying to teach you and me something and it's an opportunity to not run away from, but run towards. I don't have control, but God does. And if God knows things that I don't know, and how do I humble myself before him? How do I in him find the healing and health that he longs for me to have? The Bible is about God pursuing us through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross for our sins so that we who are rebellious, we who have lived in pride, wouldn't have a way that our sins would be forgiven. When we say, God, I agree with you. I ask you to forgive me. God takes our pride. God takes our rebellion. He pays for it in Jesus Christ. Jesus takes it. He gives us God's forgiveness and he offers us a relationship with him. Have you received that? Have you accepted that? Are you living in that? Even if you have in the past, are you living in that? Are there things in your life that God's trying to, to point out that pride and say, humble yourself before me, that you will walk out of this as more than conquerors through him who loved us? Let me close in prayer and then we're gonna close with song. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege that we have to come together today for the truth of this word. Father, I pray that you would help us to be able to to see not only something that happened thousands of years ago in a different culture in a different context, but Father, to see it as something that is, is incredibly relevant to what's happening for us today. Father, that we would learn from the mistakes of Abel Shazar. That, Father, that we would learn and humble ourselves and embrace even this crisis as an opportunity to surrender, to grow. Father, I pray for your grace in Jesus' name, amen.